This is a reading from St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, found on page 988 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing our series today on the Apostles' Creed, and we're concluding the second and largest section of the Creed, which is focused, this part focuses on Christ's return. So uh, my sermon title today is The Return of the Lord. I actually did think about calling this The Return of the King, but I don't know if you remember this, when Lord of the Rings came out, basically every sermon had some Lord of the Rings reference. So I have, I'm still a little bit wary about that. So I did The Return of the Lord, but no, I wanted to do a Lord of the Rings subtle reference in my title, okay? So roll with me with that. Well, I, was, I was just this close to doing it, but I pulled back and said, Evan, can't. We can't do this. We can't go back. We can only go forward. So today we're going to talk about the, the line. The first line is, and Christ is seated, the Son, God the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. So in the Bible, to sit at someone's right hand is, is to be in the place of power and honor, which is really kind of interesting. In Matthew, this is for free. I didn't put this in my notes. In Matthew, what happens is uh, Jesus separate, talks about separating the sheep and the goats. Maybe you have a church background. You remember this? And uh, the sheep, he says, sit on my right hand. And to the goats, he says, sit on my left. Right? So it's cool. It's a cool thing. You can impress your friends with this later. Jesus sits on God's right hand. Those who believe in Jesus will sit on Jesus' right hand, which is a pretty cool thing to think about. I, wasn't, I thought that was cool. You didn't. But keep, we're going to keep going. From there, the Apostles' Creed says, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So the Apostles' Creed gives us this wonderful reminder of Jesus' power and his future return when he will use his power to judge everyone, the living and the dead, which in John chapter 5 says that's the privilege that the Father has given the Son. John 5.22 says that. It says that the Father has given Jesus the privilege of being the judge. We may not think of like judgment as a privilege, but when we look at the Bible, the way the Bible talks about it, it is seen as a privilege. It's seen, it's seen as a good thing. It's seen as something that should bring us encouragement and should actually change our lives. So the future return of Jesus should encourage us and change how we live in the present. And before I get too far into my sermon, I do want to talk about, I just want to spend some time on the problems that are often associated with the, our attitudes towards Christ's return and how we talk about it. And then I want to talk about how his return should encourage us and how it should change us. So let's just take a moment and talk about some of the problems regarding Christ's return. And I don't mean that it's a problem for him, it's a problem for us. So let's look at um, chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't, there's Bibles in the pews. And then if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the info table. Take one of those. We want you to have one so you know I'm not making things up. 
All right? But Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Our attitude towards Christ's return can often remove the thrill of it. Apparently what's happening in 1 Thessalonians, and particularly when we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which is we're going to go through today, Paul got two questions from the Thessalonian Christians. The first one is what's starting here, what he's answering, which says, what happens to those who die or fall asleep, he says, before Christ returns? They're saying, look, Paul, you talk about Jesus coming back, but our brothers and sisters in Christ are dying. Will they miss out on it? What what about that? And then what we'll talk about shortly in chapter 5, he says, their, their second question is, hey, Paul, is there a chance that Jesus will come and I'll miss it? And Paul seeks to answer them, and what he does is he tries to fill them with hope and encouragement. Chapter 4, verse 13 says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Chapter 4, verse 18 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 5.11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. See, the prospect of Christ's return should thrill us. It should make us excited. But oftentimes our attitude towards his return can remove that thrill if we're not careful. If you could rewind the game tape of life a little bit, and for some of you this is like, you, didn't even, you weren't even alive then, I understand this. And some, for some of you, this feels like ages ago. But take, let me take you back to 2011. At the beginning of 2011, I was driving on I-95, and I started seeing billboards predicting Judgment Day was coming, May 21st, 2011. Does anybody remember these billboards? You can raise your hands. Nothing will happen to you. Okay, good. Thank you. That's a better response than I usually get. Thank you, guys. So what happened was there was this famous Christian radio host who claimed he was able to look at biblical prophecy and figure out the exact day when Christ would return. But as you may realize, because we live in the future, we're in 2023 now, Jesus didn't come back. And so the radio host, what he did is he went back to the drawing board. He's like, oh, my bad. He didn't say it like this, but I'll say uh, this is how I would say it. My bad. It's actually October 21st, 2011. And again, we're all in the future. 2023 came is where we are now, 2011, came and went, and Jesus didn't return. And in fairness to that radio host, he repented of trying to predict the date in the first place. In fairness to him. But my concern with that is, like, the damage was already done. Many of you remember those billboards, but you don't remember his repentance, his public repentance. Like, hey, I got it wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have even done that. See, despite what Jesus has said about his return in like Mark 13, 32, 
in Acts 1-7 that, you know, he didn't know when he would come back. And so it's not for us to know, but only God the Father is meant to know when he'll return. Many Christians continue to and seem to be obsessed with predicting Christ's return. So let, let me just talk about that for a second. Take, for example, the Israel-Hamas war that's happening. What happened on October 7th by Hamas on Israelis was evil, absolutely evil, and it has had ripple effects across the world towards Jews. It's absolutely horrible, and it absolutely should be condemned, and justice needs to be done. But immediately, like before the news stories even stopped in that first day, many Christians, because they read the Bible a certain way, were quick to go, aha, look, end times, end times, see, see, see. And like, I don't mean to be crass, but it's like before bodies, the bodies were still warm and people were doing this. I know we can get excited about Christ's return in some sense. Like, I, I understand that, and I understand the urgency that often comes with that and the excitement about that, but we have to be careful not to be, to, that we have to be careful we're not so obsessed with predicting Christ's return. Like, whenever stuff happens in the Middle East or Russia is somehow involved, that we start to remove the thrill of Christ's return. Sometimes we can be more thrilled about our predictions than Christ's return itself. And that can easily come across as, look at me, that can easily come across as scare tactics. It can easily come across as manipulative, or, and it can even damage the gospel. And that's my fear, is that we can only predict so many times before people start to tune out not your predictions, but the gospel itself. What we're doing is when we do that, when we become obsessed with those things, we point people to our pet theories rather than to Jesus. We can be so locked in on every detail. We're combing through biblical prophecy. We got all these awesome charts and we're taking this Greek word and looking at this Greek word and we're like taking our newspapers and we're looking at, on at Twitter, which is called X now apparently. We're looking at X and we're like, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff. Oh my word. We make these predictions and we fail to miss the point, which isn't about the how. It's about the who. It's not about how these things are going to happen. It's about who's involved. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The Bible doesn't give us as many details as we would like to believe it does. Instead, it gives us some. And then it doesn't invite us to fill in the gaps. It simply says, Jesus will come again. So some people, we, some Christians, we can be obsessed. Others of us are embarrassed by it. Well, we're timid when we talk about Jesus' return. We think people might think we're crazy, right? We don't want to be like those people, so we overcorrect. We're embarrassed about talking about Christ's return. And sometimes we're embarrassed because we don't want to be considered so heavenly minded we're of no earthly good. Right? We feel like we need to care for creation. We do. Fight injustice. We do love our neighbors, we do, but we do that so much so that we start to downplay the importance of Christ's return. 
And by doing so, we, again, we miss the forest for the trees and we start shortchanging the gospel. That's why we say every week, the mystery of the faith is what? Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We have to remind ourselves of that and we can't be ashamed of that because it's shortchanging the gospel. You're getting two-thirds of this very important event and this very important thing involved in the gospel, the mystery of the faith. If you just talk about Christ dying and rising again, you never talk about him coming back. It's shortchanging. What I love about the Apostles' Creed is that it gives this one line. It gives Christ's return one line. So in a subtle way, I must say, don't become obsessed with the topic because after all, it's one line. But don't be embarrassed by it either because after all, we gave you one line. Rather, what's supposed to happen here is Christ's return should encourage us. Paul desires to encourage the Thessalonian Christians so that even when they grieve the loss of a brother or sister in the Lord, they don't grieve as those who have no hope because their brothers and sisters are with Christ. This past Thursday, I was at a memorial service for a dear friend of mine who lost his dad. And by God's grace, the man who passed away and his family are Christians. And it was just remarkable to me how much life was infused into the service. Absolutely acknowledgement of death. They didn't like, I don't want all you counselors to get all weirded out. I'm like, oh, we're just going to smile and put a, face, a good face on when we're at funerals. That's not what Paul's saying. He says, yeah, acknowledge it. They died. But there's laughter. There's joy. There's hope. So as we talked about last week, when we die, if you believe in Jesus, you go to be with the Lord. And sometimes the New Testament calls that paradise. And I honestly don't think you'd be wrong to call it heaven. Like when I talk to my kids about it, I say, when you die and you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. Because that's where God is. But overall, the New Testament, listen to me, the New Testament is less interested in life after death than it is life after life after death. It's much more interested in not what happens to you and me when we die. They see, Paul doesn't get into the, the details of that, what happens after they die. He says, don't worry, you're not without hope. Hey, by the way, Jesus is coming back. It's more interested in what happens when Jesus returns. And the New Testament has different ways and analogies for speaking about Christ's return. One way it talks about it is Christ's appearing, his appearance. So you look at like Colossians 3, 4, or 1 John 3, 2. It says like heaven is less like a place, and it's more like another dimension, and that's separated by this very thin veil. And one day the veil will be gone, and Christ will what? He'll appear. He'll appear. It's like, could you imagine how, like, it might freak us out a little bit. Right? Anytime angels show up in the New Testament, they always have to be told, people have to be told, like, do not be afraid. Why? Because you're not used to angels just showing up. Like, if Christ just appears, we might all freak out a little bit. But he would say, do not be afraid. I'm here. So there's appearing. That's one way he talks about it. It also talks about his descending. Look at verses 4 through 6, 4 through 8, sorry, 14, chapter 4. If I could talk today, it'd be great. Chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Look at this. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What Paul's doing here, he's using an analogy of a Roman emperor visiting a city. So what happened is like Caesar, he would show up, he would pay a state visit to a city, and everyone in the city would come out of the city limits, outside the wall, of the city to meet Caesar as he came back in, and they would celebrate him and accompany him. He also did the people he conquered, which is kind of messed up, but that's a whole other story for another day. But what Caesar would do, he would come to the city, and everyone would go out of the city, and they would come back into the city with him. So listen to me. Paul is not saying that when Jesus comes back, we'll all be whisked up into heaven with him, while the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket. If we read it this way, we miss Paul's intent. And truthfully, this whole idea of like, the whole point is like for us to go to heaven is dangerously close to what false teachers were saying when the Apostles' Creed was written. You think maybe like the, you know, the Gnostics and the Marcionites, what they would say is things like, the earth is bad, so the goal is for Jesus to get us out of here. And Paul's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, actually, the goal is not for you to go to heaven it's for heaven to come to you. It's not about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming down to us. And so when Christ returns, dead Christians will rise first, he says. And then all of us who are living, all of us living Christians will go with them and will meet Christ in the air. That's the analogy he's using, right? Out, going out of the city as Christ brings heaven to earth. See, if we think the goal is to go to heaven, we read this passage and go, oh, Jesus is taking us to heaven. But the New Testament doesn't talk like that. The whole point, Revelation 21, is that the earth gets fixed. Jesus brings heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not heaven as it is in heaven. The goal is earth. For God to recreate his lost creation, his broken creation, to fix it and to solve it. Implicit, and so what Paul is also doing implicitly, which is really cool, again, I might find it cool and you might not, what he's saying is, look, Caesar might be king of a city and maybe even the empire, but Jesus is the king of the world. He said he can have that city. Go ahead, let him have it. He can even have the empire, but Jesus is the king of the world. And so when Jesus comes, we're going to meet him and we're going to come back in and reign on earth with him. So be encouraged. Because when this happens, we will always be with the Lord. Christ will be physically present with us, and he'll fix the world and rule over it. But my question to all of us is, does this bring you personal encouragement? And if it does, Paul says we should be encouraging each other with these words. We should be encouraging each other with this news. But if it doesn't bring you encouragement, why not? Maybe you're skeptical. Like, we live in a day and age where everyone's skeptical about everything. And so we might not say it out loud, but we don't see how this could possibly happen. 
And you may be like the Christians in 2 Peter 3 who kind of agree with the skeptics who say, hey, it's been 2,000 years. Where's Jesus? Where is he? Where? But the danger of skepticism is that it, what skepticism does, it eventually makes you cynical. You can't avoid that. That's what's eventually going to happen to you. And cynicism eventually destroys your soul. And nothing will bring you joy. So, like, if this doesn't bring you encouragement, nothing will. Nothing. Only temporary things, which eventually you'll become cynical about, which eventually you'll have no joy. So maybe we're skeptical, and maybe, though, I think it's probably more for most of us, maybe we love the things of this world than we love Christ himself. The danger for many Christians in the West is that we have so much. So the thought of Jesus coming back scares us because we'll have to lose those things. Right? Maybe, like, you're not married yet, and you're like, Jesus, just come, just please hold out till I get married. Just hold out, please. I would love to have that. And, you know, maybe like I maybe I have my first kid. Would that be cool? And I, at least I get that house that I always wanted. And like, at least I have the car that I would want to drive. Well, Jesus is going to come back before somebody gets married. So it might be you. But we're worried about losing those things, so it discourages us because we love those things more than we love Christ himself. Could this be you? Could that be you? Do you love what you have here so much that you can't stand the thought of being without it? And the Bible says that's idolatry. Paul Tripp says that idols are good things that have become ruling things. What's good today may be bad or broken tomorrow, so don't let that rule your life. And that idea of like things that might be good today might be bad or broken tomorrow, that lack of constancy will actually make you anxious. Or you'll never be content because you're always looking for the next good thing to rule your life. Okay, that didn't, thing didn't work out, so I'll go for this thing. I didn't get that car, but maybe I'll just reshape my goals and I'll get that house. Or I've always had a dream of having this many kids, but... You know, two, I mean, it's a nice number, especially you got like a boy and a girl. That's kind of like American family right there. So I got to get the next thing that I want. And so rather than being, like rather than Christ being the thing that we love, who is constant, who offers us peace rather than anxiety and contentment rather than lack of it, we decide to love the things of this world more than him. So which is more true of you? Is it skepticism? Like, I don't see how this could happen. Or is it, I love my life now, I would hate to lose it. And even think about that, right? The idea of, like, you stay, like we think that Christ's coming is losing somehow. Or maybe you're obsessed or you're embarrassed. But if Christ isn't encouraging us we need to bring that to God. If Christ's return isn't an encouragement to you, bring that to God and say, God, look, hey, could you just assess my life for a second? Look at my heart, please, and show me the things that are, that are taking place of Christ in my heart. What are the things that, that like are blocking out that encouragement and that thrill of Christ's return in my life? 
because Christ's return should change us. It encourages us, but also should change us. So look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Now, Paul says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, which is like a famous thing they used to say in the Roman Empire, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the helmet, the helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. See, the prospect of Christ's return should change us now. There's this comedian, Sebastian Maniscalco. I don't know if anybody's ever watched any of his stuff. He has a bit about company. And he says, back in the day, what your mom would do is your mom would have an Entenmann's cake that no one's allowed to touch just in case company stopped by. Anybody's parents used to do that? Yeah, a few of you. All right? Young people, no one does that now. I get that. The doorbell rings, somebody shows up randomly, we get a little weirded out by it, right? I'm always like checking my ring camera app. I'm like, who's at the front door? That was the mailman. Good, glad I didn't answer that when he knocked. Glad I wasn't a nice person, right? But Simon Monoscala would say, my mom would always have like something around and be prepared in case company would stop by at any moment. And Paul's saying, hey, be ready because Jesus could stop by any time. So in 5, 11, 1 through 11, in 1 Thessalonians, what Paul's answering the Thessalonians Christians, they're saying, hey, is there a chance that I as a Christian could miss Christ's return? And again, he uses an analogy. He says the day of the Lord, which is this old, like, old Testament expression about the day of God's judgment where God would judge the wicked and he would vindicate his people, he says that will come like a thief in the night. And thief in the night is a common New Testament analogy to refer to Christ's return. You can look at Matthew 24, 43, Revelation 16, 15, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11. They all use the same thing. Christ's return will come when you're not expecting it. And each time the New Testament uses that analogy, you know what always is the application? Be ready. It's always the application. Jesus says, be ready. Peter says, be ready. John in Revelation says, be ready. And Paul says, be ready. Be awake. Live like children of light, children of the day. Our Lord will return at any moment. Make sure you're living your life consistent with his lordship. When Christ returns, will he find us living in spiritual darkness? Or will he find us living in the spiritual light of the gospel? Will he find us drunk in the way of sin or will he find us sober in the way of Jesus? Will he find us skeptical or encouraged? Will he find us loving the things of this world or loving him? 
Will he find us flirting with sin or killing it? Will he find us withholding our finances or living generously? Will he find us skipping church? Will he find us gathering for worship? Young people, will he find you cheating off somebody else's work or using the mind he gave you to do your own? Parents, will he find us that we've discipled our kids in the ways of the world or that we discipled them in the ways of Christ? Be ready. This isn't to scare us. The New Testament isn't trying to scare you. Hey, be ready. Jesus could show up at any time, like the boogeyman. No, it's actually an act of love to tell us in advance so we can invite God to evaluate our lives and remove the things that are destroying us that are consistent with darkness rather than light. A doctor is unloving if she sees your cancer and doesn't tell you anything about it. A doctor is loving when she sees your cancer and tells you about it, no matter how sad it might make you. That's what Paul is doing. That's what the New Testament is doing. They're saying, be ready. We're trying to love you and say, hey, if there's cancer, do something about it. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you, that Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and as a continued act of his love for you, Jesus will return to save you. But even an act of love can bring joy or anguish. Teachers know this. Parents know this. The same lesson or same activity can bring joy to one kid and anguish from another. Right? You can prepare a lesson and one kid is fully engaged, loves every second of it, and another kid's fast asleep. Same lesson, different reactions. You can take your kids to Disney World, the most magical place on earth. And one of your kids loves every minute of it, and another one's moping because he left his girlfriend behind. Same. Not that this happened to anybody here. I don't know any of your personal stories around Disney World. Same event, same activity, same lesson, same acts of love. One person finds joy, one person finds anguish. See, for those who haven't put their faith in Christ, Jesus' return for them is hell like labor pains that never stop, which sounds horrible. But for Christians, Christ's return is heaven. Heaven come to earth. It's a thrill. Same event, two different reactions. And the Thessalonian Christians are saying, will we miss Christ's return? And Paul says, no. Guess what? No one's going to miss it. The whole world will see it happen. So prepare yourself And so I ask you, like I need to ask myself, have we? Are we? Are we preparing ourselves? If you're not a follower of Jesus today, have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's the first step to prepare yourself. And those of us who do believe in Jesus, have you asked God to actually assess your life to remove anything that's keeping you from being ready? Listen to me, there's things in our lives, if there's the great 
prayer confession that sometimes we pray is like, there's things that we, we've done and we left undone. There's things that we know that we're doing wrong. There's things we know we don't know we're doing wrong. We don't know our sin. And there's things we love that are sinful. That we need to say, God, could you assess this? Could you assess my heart? Could you assess my life? Please, because I want to be ready. But I have to believe that this is actually going to happen. And I have to be thrilled by Jesus' coming because it's going to be the same event. And for me, it's either going to be hell or heaven. And I have to ask God, which one is going to be for me? I want it to be heaven. And so, Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you so that it will be. Because in a strange way, Jesus will judge us based on how we judged him. You ever think about that? If you choose to reject Jesus, he rejects you. Same standard. It's your standard. You said, the standard is rejection or acceptance of Jesus. I rejected Jesus, and Jesus goes, okay, that's what you want. You won't have me. But if you choose to accept him, he'll accept you. See, God's wrath is never, ever unfair. It's always equitable. He judges all the same, all sin the same way. His wrath has to be poured out on sin. The question is, will he pour it out on you or will he pour it out on Jesus on the cross who became sin for you? That's the difference. That's what makes the difference. Not anything you do or I do or, or we do together. That doesn't make a difference. It's about what Jesus has done. So either Jesus receives God's wrath or we do. And so Paul says at the end, this beautiful verse, listen to this. God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want wrath for you. He wants you to receive salvation instead. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, it's through him that we obtain salvation. God has not destined those who believe in Jesus for wrath, but for salvation. Jesus who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live with him. Therefore, again, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. This is great news. Whether you're fully prepared or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, nothing can remove you from his grace. It doesn't give us an excuse to keep being unprepared. But the beauty of it is, whether you're awake or asleep, you will live in him. So be encouraged. Encourage each other. Build each other up which is Paul's fancy way of saying, do whatever you need to do to help each other grow in faith. Simple text messages, phone calls, dropping off gifts, dropping off meals. It's like reminding people what Scripture says. Do everything that you can do. That's part of being prepared is to build each other up. It's not about me and Jesus. It's never been about me and Jesus. It's always been about us. Always. And Paul's saying part of being prepared is to build each other up and encourage each other. And so out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, 
Let's take steps to be ready for his return. We need to give our lives to Jesus and make the necessary changes to live our lives to be consistent with who we are. And Paul says that. The people who you are are the people Christ died for. Children of light. Children of the day. People who wear faith, love, and hope like armor. He says in verse 8. And so my hope is for us, my hope is for you, that Christ's return would encourage you. That it would change you. And that if it's not, if it's not encouraging and it's not changing you, to ask God, why? Why is it not changing me, God? And that when we say the Apostles' Creed, we'll see it as a time where we're actually encouraging each other with the truth of his return. The reason we say it every week is not only because you need to be reminded, but we all need to be reminded. And so we'll build each other up with it until one day when Jesus returns. And so now we're like John and we just say, you know what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we're about. That's what excites us. Not what I have here, but you being with me. So like we do every week, let's stand, let's say the Apostles' Creed, let's encourage each other with the truth of the gospel. And then I'll pray for us and we'll continue our service. So Christians, together, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. With everyone, we're just going to take a moment and a second to pray. So with everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, if you're here today and you've never taken that first step of preparation to receive Jesus, I just want you to take a moment and do that. Just you and God for a minute. Just say, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me for the darkness that I'm living in. Forgive me for not receiving Jesus, but I receive him now. And I pray that you would change me. And for the rest of us, Father, we, we do need to do a, a little bit of deep dive on our souls and our hearts and just say, like, you know, if Christ's return is not encouraging me, why not? And I pray that you would show that to us. And that we would encourage each other, that we would be encouraged, and that the thrill of Christ, we wouldn't do anything to take away the thrill of Christ's return. And so, Lord, forgive us. And as we come to confess our sins and come to the table, we pray that we remember the forgiveness that we receive in you. And we thank you for that. We thank you for you who lives 
and reigns with the Son and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.